My name is Tom Sexton. I'm Benevolence Deacon here at King's Cross Church. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We're working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, welcome to my parents. They're in town this morning. And uh, yeah, man, round of applause. Yeah. Uh, I had somebody in the lobby tell me about how great my parents are. They had a chance to meet them, and then they just kind of looked at me confused and wondering what the connection was. But uh, mom was telling me uh, last night that her favorite pastor um, and this is actually as I was putting finishing touches on this. She said, my, no, no, son, my favorite pastor that I've, I've ever had, that I've sat under his preaching, would only give 17-minute sermons. Like every time. It was always 17 minutes. And so that means for us this morning three things. One is mom's going to be really disappointed. Uh, <laughs> Sorry in advance. Uh, you all now are wondering, where can I find a church like that? <laughs> you talk to mom afterwards. Uh, and number three is we got to get, get moving. So that's what we're going to do right now is get moving. Last week, we looked at the most famous event in David's life, uh, his battle with Goliath. And today, we're looking at perhaps the most infamous event in David's life in 1 Samuel Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. So if you have your Bibles, that's where we'll be camping out this morning. Uh, David was most likely in junior high, maybe not even had his driver's license yet, when he was anointed as the future king of Israel. Uh, By chapter 17, he takes takes down Goliath, which is what we saw last week. And then he becomes a hero. And King Saul becomes so jealous and angry that he ends up spending the bulk of his life Uh, trying to kill David. Uh, Eventually Saul dies in the last chapter in 1 Samuel, and then early on in 2 Samuel, David becomes king. And as far as we can tell, up until this moment, David is constantly, consistently seeking God. He's walking with God, and he's fulfilling God's mission for him. But in 2 Samuel 11, which is where we are this morning, something happens that's going to impact David, his family, and the nation of Israel for the rest of his life and even after he dies. Because of what happens in chapter 11, David unknowingly in chapter 12 gives a prophecy about himself that results in the death of of four of his sons. And because of what happens in chapter 11, Nathan the prophet tells David in chapter 12, that the sword shall never depart from your house, and your neighbor shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. So there's some serious repercussions that's going to come out of what we're seeing, or what we're going to see in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. All of these things are going to come true in his life, and we're going to see this. If you read the rest of 2 Samuel, you will see this throughout the book. So for us this morning, if you have ever felt like your sin is so bad that God could possibly never forgive you. Or if this morning you feel like your sin makes you the worst sinner on the face of the earth, or if you feel that the consequences of your past sin are so overwhelming that you can't get from underneath it, then take courage. 
David most likely has you beat. Last week, David's success pointed us to Jesus. Today, David's failure will show us our need for Jesus. Our title this morning is a pretty heavy title. It's The Destructive Nature of Sin. The Destructive Nature of Sin. And our biblical truth for today is personal sin. Personal sin destroys you and the world around you. Personal sin destroys you and the world around you. Romans 3.23, many of you have this memorized, says, For all have sinned, Paul writes, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. By definition, according to this verse, sin is simply not living up to God's standard. It's doing things that he says don't do, and it's not doing the things that he has commanded us to do. It is walking in a character uh, with who you are and how you think and what you do that is different than God's character. And then Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. So what we earn for our sin is death. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3, how one decision from Adam and Eve to disobey God brought death to Adam and Eve, brought death spiritually in their relationship with God, brought death socially in their relationship with one another, it brought death psychologically and how they think about themselves, and it brought death physically as well. And we have seen, as we have journeyed through the Bible so far since January, we have seen the destructive nature of sin spread throughout the nation of Israel and beyond. There is no such thing, regardless of what we would like to believe about the sin in our lives, there is no such thing as sin that only affects you. So whether it's adultery and murder, which is what we're about to look at, or deceit and manipulation, or pride and selfishness, or simply grudges and bitterness, sin has serious consequences for you and for me and for those around us. So that's the bad news. But the good news is that every turn in the scriptures we have seen as well we have also seen not only the destructive nature of sin, but we have seen the overwhelming presence of God's grace. I'm reminded of the phrase in Romans 5.20 where Paul writes, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So what makes today unique and what makes what we're looking at today unique is that we're going to look specifically at how God's grace is readily available at all times to keep you and me from sin, and then to forgive us of sin. The word grace is not mentioned in 2 Samuel 11 through 12. You, you won't be, do a word search, it won't come up. But it's clearly evident throughout the entire story that we're looking at today. So let's dive in. We're going to read the bulk of 2 Samuel 11, and then we're going to look at parts of chapter 12 before we're done. Chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. That he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. 
Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, and he said, send me, the Uriah, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. David's coming up with a plan. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. All right, so plan A didn't work, so maybe plan B will. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah, Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So plan B didn't work. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell Uriah the Hittite also died. And if you skip to verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she uh, lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So there are, I believe, at least what I'm seeing, is two truths that scream, hey, look at me in this, in this passage, in this text. Two truths that I think are, are, are very evident. The first one is that sin destroys you and the world around you. It's our biblical truth. The second truth that I see, it doesn't have to. In other words, sin does not have to destroy you and the world around you. You can actually prevent, and I don't know if we've ever said this at King's Cross, <laughs> you can actually prevent the biblical truth for today from actually happening in your life. <laughs> so in chapter 12, we're going to see how grace was received. In chapter 11, we're going to see first where grace was ignored. So let's look at five different ways in which grace was ignored in 2 Samuel chapter 11. First, we see that David was not walking with God. God is mentioned, and I counted them. It took me a while, but I counted 172 times in the book of 2 Samuel where God or the Lord is mentioned. But in chapter 11, 
there's no mention of the Lord, at least in the first 26 verses. There are 27 verses in chapter 11, and the Lord is only mentioned in the last sentence of the last verse, where we see, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So in chapter 11, there is David, there is Joab and Uriah, but there's no mention of the Lord until you get to the last verse. There's no statement about God. There's no interaction with God. There's no thought about God till you get to the very end. So as a dad, I am constantly on, uh, and if you're dads, you may know these two websites. I'm constantly on Common Sense Media and plugged in. My kids hate these websites uh, because they tell us all the movies we can't watch. And uh, they, they tell you about language. They tell you about sex. So I'm always on there trying to look and see how much sex and how much language are in the movies that my kids are wanting to watch. My standard is, if there's no sex and if there's no language, then it's all right with me, which, you know, throws out about 99% of the movies. But So I was uh, talking in my, D group, my grow group a couple of weeks ago with uh, one of my friends, Don Smith, and he mentioned uh, that TV shows that don't have sex and don't have bad language in them are not necessarily great programs to watch because if they don't mention God then they are often communicated communicating that you can do life without God and be okay so as we look in chapter 11 we can see specifically in some horrific ways what life is like when you remove God from the narrative if David was simply walking with God then this most likely would never have happened. Peter in Acts 10, so you know, David goes up on a roof. Well, we have another situation where uh, a man of God goes up on the roof. So we see Peter in Acts chapter 10, he goes up on a roof. Uh, but verse 9 says that he went up on a roof to pray. And so you contrast that with David going up on a roof. It's really hard to go up on a roof to pray and at the same time pray on other people while you're on the roof. So if you've been following along with our devotional plan, you probably know that one of the ways that we encourage people to study the Bible is to use the SOAP method. And so you write down the scripture. That's the S in S-O-A-P. You observe the text. That's the O. You apply the text, and then you pray. Uh, so you didn't, you didn't hear this from me because I, I wouldn't say anything like this, but our uh, lead pastor once said that if David was busy soaping the scriptures, he wouldn't have time, had time to watch Bathsheba soap herself. <laughs> so for those who are engaged in prayer, and for those who are engaged in soaping the scriptures, more than likely you wouldn't see what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So first is we see David was not walking with God. Second is we also see that David was not with his people. David was not with his people. Verse 1 reads, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, but David remained at Jerusalem. So Joab was gone, his officers were gone, and all of Israel had left. So I guess that's everyone else. But David remained in Jerusalem. So now we can see that he was not alone. There were a couple of guys there that he sent to do his dirty work, to bring in Bathsheba, but for the most part, 
he was by himself. But since these guys, so let's talk about these guys that were there. Let this happen. Let this event happen. Either those guys didn't have much character or they were scared to give pushback to the king. And so for me, I think it's important to note in my life and in your life that it's possible to be with people but not necessarily the right kind of people. So David could have been with people, but in a sense he was isolated from the right kind of people because these guys weren't the right kind of people that he needed in his life. But it's also to be possible to be with the right people. So we don't know much about these guys, but it's also possible to be with the right kind of people, but keep them at arm's length. As if to say, you can come this far, but don't come any closer. So my questions for me and my questions for you is, have you ever put yourself around people who either push you to God or away from God? Have you put yourself around people who have the freedom to say hard things to you? And then have you put yourself around people who have the freedom to ask you, what is it about this particular sin or temptation that makes you think it's worth the consequences? Especially when you're already flirting or engaging in sin, it takes intentional effort to put yourself around people who will challenge you to get rid of the thing that is bringing you pleasure. David, at least on this day, did not put himself around people who pushed him to God, nor friends who had the freedom to say hard things to you. Is that the case in your life as well? The third thing that we also see is that David was not doing his job. Again, verse 1 reads, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David remained at Jerusalem. So I see three observations. First is that David was not doing his job, and therefore he had a lot of time on his hands to walk around on the roof and see what he wants to see and see what he, and to get what he wants to get. For David, I also see that he was a king, and therefore his job was doing king-type stuff. And what do kings do? Well, in the spring of the year, kings go out to battle. And I really wish that I had uh, titled this number three, had a different title, instead of saying David was not doing his job. After thinking through it, uh, Jacob, are you wanting to switch out mics? I'm kind of looking at you over here. Okay, I'm going in and out. His job, but that it actually reads David was not engaged in battle. Because for David in this particular situation, at this particular time, that's what he was called to do. And then my takeaway for, you want, there you go. all right, take this off too, or not, maybe I'll just throw it in the back. Okay, I think I'm good. Uh, for this particular time, in this particular season, David was supposed to be engaged in battle. And I think about, well, how does that apply to me, and how does that apply to you in our lives? Well, I think... Principally speaking, Paul brings it home for us in 2 Timothy 4.2, where he says, be ready in season and out of season. So for this particular time, because of his job, David was supposed to be engaged in battle, and he wasn't. But Paul is saying for Christians, all of us, at all times during the year, every moment in your life, we're supposed to be prepared to be engaged in battle. And specifically, he says in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So David wasn't doing his job. He wasn't engaged in battle. In reality, it's not a lack of a nine-to-five job that leads us to sin. 
It's really a lack of kingdom mission. It's really a lack of engaging in the battle that leads us to sin, which is a job that God has given us all to do at every season during the year. And this is my takeaway here. It's impossible to let your guard down when you're in the middle of a battle, and particularly the battle in fighting and advancing God's kingdom. So we also see, number four, that David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Verse 2 reads, It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So what we do know is that David was on the roof and it was the afternoon. What we don't know is had he been there before, and had he seen her before? Was this a regular occurring uh, observation that he had been made, making? There's no way really to tell. But regardless, walking around on the roof in the afternoon for David became the wrong place at the wrong time for him in that moment. So for you, I want to take a minute and just think about where are those reoccurring moments maybe for you in your life? And where are those reoccurring places that you have been able to identify that for you it's the wrong place and maybe a particular time is the wrong time or maybe any time is the wrong time? For instance, like it could be a location like a bar or the beach, or the pool, or the gym. None of these are bad places within themselves. But for you, it could be the wrong place at the wrong time. Or it could be a certain group of people that you have a tendency to hang out with. Sometimes you like it, sometimes you don't. For you, it could be this group of people, the wrong place or the wrong time. For you or for me, it could be Netflix or YouTube or other streaming apps that cause you to go down a road of temptation that eventually leads you to sin, to eventually experience the destructive consequences of that very sin. It could be social media like Facebook or Instagram, and I'm learning a lot now having teenage girls what Snapchat really is. But it could be some kind of social media like, and there's something about social media. It kind of feels like being on a roof to where I can look down and kind of see everybody's activities and what they're doing all at once. And then if I so feel like it, I can maybe double-click, and that feels like kind of like sending a messenger to... Uh, send a messenger to someone to engage in a conversation that may lead to someplace else in a place where I feel like it's private and no one else will know. Or it could be, it may not be for you that it's necessarily on a roof, but for some of us it could actually be under a roof. Like if you were dating or engaged or married to someone else and you find yourself under the same roof by yourselves for a brief or extended period of time, then eventually you will find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time. So we also see, and this is last, uh, as far as grace ignored, that we see David was always in control. Uh, he was always in control through this whole narrative, and therefore he had no one to blame but himself. There's, there's no indication that Bathsheba was to blame. It's not her fault that she had this once-a-month ceremonial cleaning, cleansing, and it's not... And it's, well, it's actually really hard to judge her because could you imagine what the repercussions could be for saying no to a king's order? And so we can't blame 
her. We can't say that David was just a victim of circumstances and a victim of his environment because he always, through this whole narrative, had a way out. And we really can't blame Satan because Satan, even though he's an influence, he didn't make David do it. Satan doesn't have power to make you sin. Now, according to Ephesians 4.27, that we can give the devil an opportunity. In fact, in the NIV, the translation is that we can give him a foothold which is exactly what David was doing by not walking with God, not connecting with people, disengaging from the battle, and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was given the devil a foothold. So, but all, all throughout this narrative, we see that David is, was in control when he walked on the roof. David was, was in control when he stayed on the roof. He was in control when he came up with a plan. David was in control when he summoned his servants. He was in control of all decision-making power when he told them the plan. He was in control while he waited. And he was in control when she came up and she met him. At each of these seven moments, David could have changed his course and made a 180. But he didn't. David was always control, in control. God was already always providing a way out. And David never took it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul writes, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And that's what I mean by God's grace being evident through this entire narrative. So I haven't mentioned it much as I've walked through these five, but let me just say it here. At every turn, God, by his grace, was providing a way out. That's the same for David, and that's the same for you, and that's the same for me. I'm not a victim of our circumstances. It's not someone's fault. It's not the devil made me do it. We always have an opportunity by God's grace. David had the opportunity and ability to walk with God. That's God's grace. David had the opportunity and ability to be with his people. That's God's grace. David had the ability, an opportunity to be on mission and engage in the battle. That's not a chore. That's God's grace. David had the opportunity and ability to put himself in the right place at the right time. That's God's grace. And by God's grace, David was always in control. But in each and every step of the way, David ignored the means of grace that were available to him. No matter what you may be facing, you are in control. By God's grace, you can always, whatever temptation or you find, whatever place you find yourself in where you have the opportunity, opportunity to sin, you are in control. You can always keep your mouth shut. You can always turn around and walk the other way. You can always forgive. You can always reconcile. You can always turn off the TV. You can always put down the phone, and you can always shut down social media accounts. All of this is God's grace. I believe that God has a challenge, and he has an encouragement for us this morning. The challenge is, where are you ignoring God's grace and opening yourself up to sin and its consequences? And the encouragement is that you can get off the roof today. I can get off the roof today. When you, when you walk out into our lobby, most of you are familiar with this. You look on the right-hand side wall by the windows at the front. 
you will see something that, that really uh, looks like a menu. Uh, and I know I'm being funny by saying this, but I just thought about this last night when I was thinking through this. You need three meals a day, right? We all need three meals a day. Uh, at a restaurant, you get a menu, and it's got breakfast, it's got lunch, and it's got dinner. Well, we also have three categories out there, right? So we have grow in the gospel, connect in community, and live on mission. You and I can get off the roof today by growing in the gospel through trusting and knowing Jesus, developing spiritual habits, and public worship. You and I can get off the roof today by connecting in community through building relationships, serving one another, getting in small groups. You can get off the roof today by living on mission through your spheres of influence and sharing the gospel there, through local outreach and getting involved in serving uh, the community there, or engaging in the mission which King's Cross is about and helping us plant more churches. But you can get off the roof through engaging in these battles. If David had lived out our wall, he would have gotten off the roof. Chapter 11 gives us five different ways in which David ignored God's grace and sinned. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Ephesians 5.20. So when we get to chapter 12 and see God's grace show up, or when we get to chapter 12, we will see God's grace show up in multiple ways, which is where we're at now after David's sin. So look at five ways in which grace was ignored. Let's look at six different ways in which grace was received in chapter 12. So the first is that Nathan speaks. So I'll read all five, the first five verses in chapter 12, one through five. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And you see what's happening. David doesn't realize it, but he's talking about himself. So Nathan knew he was close enough to David that he knew that the kind of story to, he knew the kind of story to tell a former shepherd. And he picked one that would resonate with him. So it is the Lord's grace. That first phrase, the Lord sent Nathan to David. That is the Lord's grace. People who speak truth to you is a means of God's grace, not only to keep you from sin, which is what we just looked at, but also they're a means of God's grace to you after you sin. Number two, God convicts. Verse seven, Nathan said to David, and like probably the greatest mic drop moment in the Bible, you are the man. So far in our journey through the Bible, we have seen Jesus as the ark that rescues us. We've seen him in the Passover lamb's blood that saves us from death. We've seen Jesus through the willingness of Isaac to be sacrificed. We've seen Jesus even as a snake on a pole that heals us. But right here in chapter 12, we actually get a glimpse of what the Holy Spirit now does for every believer. 
Jesus would say in John 16, 8, and when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world, convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, what David probably felt in that moment was not quite as a pleasurable feeling as maybe what he felt early in Genesis chapter 11. But what he felt in that moment, which was conviction, which is ultimately from the Holy Spirit, was a means of God's grace to him. And conviction is a means of God's grace to us as well. Number three, where we see grace received is that David repents. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So the conviction settles in. He says, I've, I've sinned against the Lord. So I think we ought to push pause here and just say, wait a second. You know, what, what we saw in chapter 11 was, yes, David sinned against Bathsheba. And, and yes, David sinned against her husband Uriah. But sinning against the Lord? Those were the first words out of David's mouth. I've sinned against the Lord. So repentance is a change in mind. There's actually two different definitions throughout the Bible on what repentance is. First is it's a change in mind. You, you see your sin differently. You saw it this way once, and now you see it another way now. So it's repentance and how you think about your sin. It's also a change in a course of action. It's a 180. I'm going this way, and now I'm going another way. And true repentance, and David gives us a, a really clear understanding of what true repentance is. It starts with being grieved at first of how you've disobeyed and you have offended God, who ultimately has called you to himself, who has ultimately given you people in your lives that you are called to steward. So when you sin against yourself and you sin against others, you're ultimately sinning against God. So I don't know if you're interested in... Uh, uh, reading other people's diaries, especially after they committed adultery and murder. But if you ever wanted to read someone's diary after they committed adultery and murder, you have an opportunity in the Bible. And so Psalms 51 was written by David on the very day, day that Nathan confronted him in his sin. And it's a psalm that shows incredible, true, genuine, sincere repentance. And in verse 4 of Psalms 51, David writes to God, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The ability that God gives a person to repent is a means of his grace. Number four, God forgives. Uh, Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. So I think it's important for us to realize that in, in the same verse, I mean, this is, so it's two sides of the coin. What is happening here in, in uh, verse 13? First is we see that David simply confesses to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan immediately tells him, the Lord has put away your sin. I mean, that is incredible great news that is a compacted in one verse. Isn't it awesome that he doesn't tell him later Somewhere down the line, after David's done a few things, that the Lord has put away your sin. It's right there. So David did not have to read his Bible seven days in a row. He didn't have to go serve in KCK. He didn't have to give a certain amount of money. He didn't have to experience a certain level of punishment. It was right then. So forgiveness comes with confession. Confession that we have sinned against the Lord. 
All of what happened in chapter 11 and the forgiveness that David would receive right here in chapter 12 simply showed David's need for a Savior who would one day die in his place and put away his sin. God is a gracious God. Number five, David suffers. So uh, verses 14 and 15 says this, Nevertheless, because by this deed, this is Nathan still speaking, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And on the seventh day, the child died. So incredible greatness. Forgiveness is always available to you. But also sin always has repercussions for you in the world around you. God will always forgive your sin when you confess and you put your trust in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't take away the fact that sin has consequences. And so we see this laid out in the text. David's sin destroyed Bathsheba's marriage and Uriah's life. David's sin led to the death of his child and eventually three of his other sons. David would experience sorrow upon sorrow for the rest of his life regarding his family. Sometimes the sin brings the consequences. Like, I'm going to sleep with a woman. Well, there's adultery, and I've got to deal with that. Okay, I'm going to kill someone, and obviously the consequences that come with that. So sometimes the actual sin just brings the consequences. Sometimes the sinner brings the consequences. Like, I committed adultery, now I feel like I've got to commit murder. So the sinner's bringing the consequences on his own. And then sometimes God brings the consequences. And we, and we see this in Hebrews chapter 12, which is an incredibly encouraging verse whenever we go through suffering, because it says that the Lord disciplines those who he loves, that he uses suffering in our lives to bring us closer to him. So all the consequences of our sin will lead to some form of suffering. But, but when God uses the suffering to bring you close to him, the suffering also becomes a means of God's grace to you. And then number six, lastly, God redeems. 2 Samuel 12, through 20, uh, verse 24, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. God is able to use every evil for his glory and our good. Out of David's sin in chapter 11, you have what the Bible says is the most wisest man that's ever walked the face of the earth sit on the throne of Israel. You have a man that would end up writing several books in the Old Testament. So, and you have a man that is in the ancestral lineage of Joseph that would eventually marry Mary, the mother of Joseph. And this was a man, or the baby, that was mentioned right after he was born. It's not in the text that I just read, but it said the Lord loved him. And so even out of sin... God redeems the situation, and he does much good in someone's life. So he did this with David's sin that led to the birth of Solomon. He did this with sinners who nailed Jesus to the cross so that we can be forgiven. Think about this. The worst, most horrific, horrible thing that has ever happened in the history of mankind ended up becoming and God redeeming for the greatest good that could ever exist and happen and be available to each one of us in the history of mankind, and that is Jesus' death and resurrection. And he can do this in your life as well, that he can take whatever 
bad situation that you find yourself in as a result of your sin or other people's sin, and he can redeem it for the good. So no matter what temptation you are facing, no matter what sin you have committed, no matter what suffering you are going through, God's grace is always available to you to keep you from sin as long as you don't ignore it. And God's grace is always available to forgive and redeem as long as you have received it. God is always ready to forgive and restore and redeem for those who confess and believe and repent. And so we're about to take communion, and Chip's going to come up here and lead us through this, and he's going to give us an opportunity to think through uh, whether or not we've come to a personal a top place in our life where we've personally received God's grace through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So that's something that I want to settle with us this morning, is have you come to a place to where for the first time you said, God, I, I, I need your forgiveness. I feel like, yes, there's times in the past where I feel like I'm the worst sinner that's ever walked the face of the earth. And sometimes the consequences of my sin have felt so overwhelming that I feel like there's no way to get up under it. God is providing for you this morning the way to get out from up under that, and that is through trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's how you can receive God's grace this morning. Then for those who have been walking with Christ for a long time, like David was leading up to uh, chapter 11, like it's almost crazy how close he was walking with the Lord. And, and we see his relationship being just on display in even chapter 7, but we see him make this incredible, horrific, really sin after sin in chapter 11. And maybe that's where you are for those that have been walking with Jesus for a long time. So God's grace is readily available to you if you would just confess and receive it fresh and anew in your life. And for all the rest of us, right now, when we leave to walk out of here, there is going to be opportunity after opportunity for you to fall into temptation and engage in sin that's going to lead you down a path of consequences of destruction for you and the world around you. But the, very th the thing that I just want everybody, including myself, to remember as soon as we walk out of here today, and I pray for the rest of the week and for the rest of our lives, is that God's grace in every situation at all times is always available to us, not only to forgive us from our sins, but also to keep us from sin and the consequences that come with that. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word and how clear it is. And Lord, I just pray that we would walk away this morning just with a, a clear understanding of the grace that is provided, Lord Jesus, by you dying on the cross for our sins. And I pray that we would embrace grace this morning. I pray that we would embrace grace for forgiveness, for redemption, and for protection. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.